Do all these people get along? Because I can tell you on the Democratic side, not everybody gets along. <laughs> They've got their little alliances. No, definitely not. I mean, listen, the Republicans are bad about this. We air our dirty laundry everywhere. I mean, we don't even keep it a secret, right? We tweet at each other. Where uh, Republicans can be more nasty to each other than we are to Democrats. I don't know if you guys are like that, but sometimes I'm like, no, you guys are worse to each other than the Democrats. Hey, it's Johanna Masca, and I'm really grateful you're tuning in to this episode of Press Advance. My job in the White House was one a lot of folks don't know even exists, but it was the job of Press Advance, which is setting the stage for the President of the United States. And before that, I did it for the candidate. So that's probably why I watch those announcing that they're running for president so closely. Today, we are talking about the emerging field of Republicans running for president, and the first is former President Donald Trump. In an unusual move, he announced that he was going to run for president again just days after November's midterm election, which is about two years before we vote. Based on poll results and establishment backing, President Trump currently leads the field in the Republican Party, but back when he first got into politics— Everyone, most political pundits, wrote him off and said that he didn't have a chance. That's why on Press Advance, we're going to talk about everyone running for president. On today's episode of Press Advance, we're talking about President Trump with Morgan Ortegas, who served his administration as State Department spokesperson. And because of her national security background, we talk about the challenges facing all of the candidates proving their credibility on national security and about some of the other candidates vying for the top spot in the party. Stay tuned after I talk to Morgan Ortegas for a conversation with Julia Manchester, national political reporter for The Hill, and a frequent guest on News Nation's 5 p.m. Eastern show, The Hill, where we continue a lot of these conversations. Julia has been covering the candidates, throwing their hat in the race, and offers a lot of good information. Because President Trump is the leading contender for the Republican bid right now, I had to start by asking my friend Morgan Ortegas what we're missing about Donald Trump. He actually is very funny and and cares about the people who work for him. He's very personable. I see him respond, and I know this is going to like blow the mind of a lot of liberals. I, I normally see him respond better to strong women in some cases than strong men. I, I always feel like I can get away with saying things that like maybe a type A guy, there would be that guy to guy sort of male ego competition. Um, he has a woman actually running his campaign right now named Susie Wiles, who's a very seasoned operative. Um, she's a total adult in the room. And, and Susie's one of the people in charge. And, you know, I think uh, one of the reasons, for example, that you saw so much of the Florida delegation flip uh, and endorse Trump uh, before Ron DeSantis, you know, has even had a chance to get out of the gate is a lot because of Susie Wiles, who, by the way, uh, was Ron DeSantis's campaign manager for his first bid for governor. So that was 2018. So uh, that's just a little bit of Florida intrigue uh, for everybody. Um, but I, I will say, for example, so right after our uh, uh, our embassy was attacked, uh, it was around 
New Year's Eve because I remember I finally had gotten a break. Uh, it was going into 2020. I went out to LA, uh, Johanna, and was going to spend New Year's Eve in LA with friends and quickly uh, flew back and spent the night in the operations center. Um, and my dog had just died. And so uh, President Trump called me and I assumed it was about, I knew Soleimani was coming. Uh, our, again, you know, our embassy was being hit by the Shia militias in Iraq. And I assumed that it was going to be something about everything going on. And instead, for five minutes, he talked to me about nothing else about my dog and then just hung up the phone. And I sort of sat there looking at my husband because, you know, my husband's like, you know, it's not that often you get a call from the president of the United States. And he was like, was, was he just talking about Napoleon? Napoleon was the name of our dog. And I said, yeah, that's it. That's all we talked about for five minutes was the dog. So I, I think those are some of the things that you're seeing in the press. Um, you know, the differences maybe between how President Trump and, and Governor DeSantis, you know, operate politically, uh, both incredibly brilliant men. Um, and Trump just has a, a very different way of dealing with people one on one. You see this from the like waiters and people who've worked for him, that he's com- constantly tipping really well. He's, he's very he's very much an old fashioned politician um, in that sense. That's funny because you wouldn't know uh, from uh, traditional media because I think that the conversation is more like, you know, this guy bad. And it was interesting, even at the beginning of the administration, I remember he had won. He was now our commander in chief. And you had so many people saying that they wouldn't serve in the administration, even though he was the commander in chief. And to me, I remember saying at the time, like, if the commander in chief calls you to serve, I serve like I would believe in service. And um, and yet there was that like sentiment. Now, this time around, he's running as a president who, of course, had the issue of potentially trying to overturn election results in Georgia. He has the issue of January 6th. I could see more people backing away in the Republican Party should he get the nomination. But um, do you think that there are still, because from what you see on the outside, it looks like a lot of his loyalists have run away from him, have fallen out. But do you see, are there still a lot of smart people who surround him who would make the decisions should he win? So a couple of things, um, you brought up some really interesting points there. Number one, I want to say that I totally agree with you on the sentiment that you serve whenever the president of the United States um, asks you to. It's one of the reasons why I wouldn't sign a never Trump letter or never anybody letter. You know, I served in the first term of the Obama administration as a career intelligence you know, person, and I had my you know, p- political thoughts at the time, but I kept them off of social media. I didn't do TV until after I left the administration. I was very proud to serve as you know, I'm still a reservist. Um, and and God forbid, right, should President Biden call me up and ask me to go somewhere, I'll put on the uniform and we'll salute and we'll serve the commander in chief. And I think we need more people like that. Um, and, and I've said that before and even taken flack for saying it. And I'm like, I, you know, this is America, right? I will work wholeheartedly to make sure that President Biden is not the president in 2025, that, that a Republican is inaugurated. But in the meantime, while he's there, I, I, right. In, in terms of whenever I put the uniform on. So, um, the young people, I think need to be more, you know, have a call to action and service in general. Um, so I think it's important that you brought that up in terms of who's surrounding themselves with Trump. First of all, let me just say that the, the base and, and the majority of the Republican party, um, 
is behind him, which I think is very different from political operatives in Washington. And I saw in 2016, uh, a lot of political operatives who signed the Never Trump letter or who were very critical of him uh, publicly or even just privately scrambling, right? Scrambling um, like moths towards a flame to get a political appointment and to get into the administration. And uh, there was, uh, <laughs> they were all those same people who may say whatever to you privately uh, will be, you know, chomping at the bit. Uh, to be able to get whatever position they want in government. Um, you know, will there be, you know, I think it will be different for in terms of who goes into the White House, because that's like the National Security Advisor, Robert O'Brien, who's a very good friend of mine, did a very good job at the end. But that is definitely a challenging position and the position that had the most um, tur- uh, turnover in the Trump administration from his senior officials. Does he listen to people, meaning does he take their advice or is he someone who believes he always knows what he wants to do? I think the best um, the best place and examples would be, of course, foreign policy for me, uh, are both on his decisions in Syria and in Afghanistan. Uh, and we all remember how he campaigned in 16. Um, I think it was the fall, uh, like around December... 19 when he made when he said that you know basically sort of gave a green light for the for the Turks to go uh, into Syria which we thought you know might result in the annihilation of some of our Kurdish allies who had fought with us against Isis um, he did end up uh, reversing that decision because a lot of prominent people you know weighed on him on, on why this was not the right idea and we still have special forces uh, operators in Syria today um, because he did reverse course. Another is Afghanistan. Uh, early in the administration, um, he he actually, you know, a lot of people thought he was going to withdraw right away. I remember that I think it was summer 17 when he gave the when he gave the speech about why we were going to stay um, and continue to fight the Taliban. He waited for a good 15, 18 months, however long it took us to make that negotiation and, and did not just make a snap judgment and pull everyone out. You know, and in hindsight, I, I, I think President Biden um, and his team, if they had to do it all over again, probably would not have exited Afghanistan the way they did. So we've already seen Nikki Haley announced. Nikki Haley is someone I find interesting because she was a governor. She was UN ambassador. She has some serious credentials in all of those roles. She's really looked at the dollars and cents because she goes back to her you know, basis in accounting. And so even when she was at UN, she really looked at what are we giving in terms of aid to states that vote against us in everything at the UN. What do you know about Nikki Haley that the world doesn't know? I, you know, I've only met her once um, and she was incredibly nice. I, I would say on paper, she's everything that we would want in a candidate, right? Like she's Indian American uh, ancestry, uh, like you said, UN ambassador, governor to two-term governor, even though she left to be uh, UN ambassador. So on paper, she's everything that you would want. She has struggled uh, with the base. Uh, it depends on the poll, but she stays around four to six percent. Uh, maybe a little bit more depending on the state. She sort of stays in the in the, in the figures where Pence does. Uh, that's not going to be enough to win the nomination. So what all of these candidates are, are looking for, people like Nikki Haley, is what's their breakout moment? 
Um, now, she may very well end up being the only woman on the debate stage. And so that will that will certainly just from the perspective of media attention and where does the camera go and, you know, things like that. I, I think she will benefit from from being the only woman on the stage and, and being quite, you know, accomplished. Um, so um, so we'll see what she does to get her breakout moment. Now, it's going to be hard for both her and Tim Scott running from South Carolina because, you know, theoretically, uh, you don't. If, if you're one of the other candidates, if you're Trump or DeSantis or even Pence, you don't have to win South Carolina. I think it gets really hard for Haley and Tim Scott to justify moving their candidacy forward if they can't win their home state. And and President Trump at the moment is trouncing both of them in their home state. I think you're right that, that Nikki Haley or Tim Scott are going to have to win their home state. We would not have won South Carolina with President Obama had we not won Iowa. So I think with either of those candidates, they need to win an Iowa or a New Hampshire to actually contend in their own state. That's my question with Tim Scott. He is a genuine human being. You've, you've known him. He is someone who talks a lot about his faith, has worked across the party aisle, whether it's on um, police reform or on opportunity zones. What foreign policy experience or credentials will he bring to the table? Because that was a big question, an uphill battle with President Obama. Um, that's a great question. How did you guys deal with that with President Obama? Do you remember when trying we, to remember. Uh, do you remember when he said that if he found out that Pakistan was harboring terrorists, he would go after Pakistan unilaterally in a debate and Hillary Clinton set, called him naive? Let me make this clear. There are terrorists holed up in those mountains who murdered 3,000 Americans. They are plotting to strike again. It was a terrible mistake to fail to act when we had a chance to take out an Al-Qaeda leadership meeting in 2005. If we have actionable intelligence about high-value terrorist targets and President Musharraf will not act, we will. He was right. He got Osama bin Laden by doing that. He did. He did. And I remember it was like, everybody was like, oh my God, he's so naive. And mainstream media, again, like they wrote him off and they were like, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I, you know, it's a, it's an interesting issue because at the time, I think people were more concerned about getting out of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And he was on the right side of that. That's right. And Hillary Clinton had voted for the war. That's right. I remember that. So it was like the issues that ended up mattering. And then really it was kitchen table issues that people wanted to talk about. And I think there will probably be a lot of interesting parallels in 24 as well to 2008. But, you know, if, if the economists are right, and we do go into a recession, even mild, if it's pushed off into 24, um, if the Fed still struggles to get uh, inflation to a reasonable place where, you know, Americans aren't paying, you know, $6,000 more, you know, for expenses as they are right now uh, due to inflation, cost of gas, all, you know, all of those things factor into it. So if we have still sort of a teetering economy, I think the Republicans will do everything they can to make it, as you said, kitchen table issues and issues about the pocketbook. But, you know, the one thing that you can't control is, is what goes on in the world. And I think that the, I, I, I think what Tim Scott and, and others will have to show is that they can be a calm, steady hand 
you know, what the Republicans will argue is that we are at an incredibly perilous time in the world. And because of, again, this will be a Republican argument. You probably don't agree with us. We would say, but because of Biden's weakness on the world stage um, and the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the way in which it happened, it led Putin to invade Ukraine and and um, appeasement of these autocrats uh, only invites um, you know more ca- more consternation. Perhaps the Chinese you know decide to move on Taiwan. There's so many things that could happen. So the Republican uh, candidate, all of them are going to have to make the argument that I would be better than not only Joe Biden but Kamala Harris as well because he would be the oldest. He's the oldest person. He's the oldest president. He's the oldest person ever running for president. So uh, the vice president is fair game in that scenario. Um, And I do think in 24, uh, you're going to see um, Tim Scott and others, uh, you know, say, listen, we have a guy who's like literally asleep at the wheel and we have a vice president who has not been able to find her sea legs on the world stage. And I would be better in this in, in this very contested geopolitical atmosphere that we're living in. Do all these people get along? Because I can tell you on the Democratic side, not everybody gets along. <laughs> They've got their little alliances. No, definitely not. I mean, listen, the Republicans are bad about this. We air our dirty laundry everywhere. I mean, we don't even keep it a secret, right? We tweet at each other. Where uh, Republicans can be more nasty to each other than we are to Democrats. I don't know if you guys are like that, but sometimes I'm like, no, you guys are worse to each other than the Democrats. Oh, I think we can absolutely be terrible to each other. But it, it's interesting because a lot of times I'm seeing these candidates, they are, they're going after Biden. And I just keep being like, you're not running against Joe Biden yet. Like, you know, and so DeSantis, when I talk about people getting along, the rumor mill is that I've heard is that DeSantis's colleagues don't always like him because he can come across as arrogant or like he knows everything. Um, And that is one of the reasons that some people have said it's unlikely that everybody would drop out of the race to let DeSantis beat Trump. Is this just a rumor or what's the truth? Well, who knows, right? Like people are definitely uh, jealous, right? That he's doing so so well. Again, President Trump is still leading by double digits. And the national polls, I, I'm sure the DeSantis campaign has some early state polls that put them in a more favorable position. I'll tell you that I supported um, Ron DeSantis in his first house race. Um, I think that we were, I was on the board of Maverick Pack at the time, and I think we were one of the first checks um, to him. Uh, we were definitely uh, excited to support him because he was in his 30s at that point. He was a veteran, Harvard Law School, like sort of check, check, check everything that you could hope for. Um, I found him to be very uh, personable and and very nice one-on-one, right? I didn't experience this, you know, some of the criticisms that you have. Um, I do think, and and Pompeo is the same way as well. Um, And I wonder if Obama was this way. You know, Pompeo is actually an introvert. And I wonder if DeSantis, I don't know him well enough, but I wonder if he's an introvert as well. I know I always read that Obama was an introvert. And I think when, oh, you, yeah. <laughs> I think when you're really, really smart, um, as, as these three men are, I think when you're really smart and introverted, people are so used to like a Bill Clinton or even Trump uh, big 
like extrovert with a capital E personality that then they deal with an introverted politician who maybe likes to spend, he, he or she likes to spend more time with their thoughts than in a crowd of people. People sometimes like don't know how to read that. They don't understand it because it's not what they're used to dealing with. Because I, I remember reading the same criticisms about President Obama, arrogant, aloof. And I thought, well, I think he's just an introvert. Uh, he, very much the same criticisms. He hated doing photo lines. Uh, he hated like having to, you know, uh, listen to all of the advice of all of the wealthy people. Um, in some ways, I see so much of that in uh, DeSantis. Well, so last thing on foreign policy, he already stepped in it. He said uh, that he saw Ukraine as a territorial dispute. Who is advising him on foreign policy? And do you think that he will uh, stop having those gaffes anytime soon? I think that DeSantis um, is sort of embodying the debate that we're having within the Republican Party, you know, right now um, about the the proper role uh, for aid to Ukraine against the Russians. Listen, I've been, one of the things that I've been incredibly critical of, and, and I'm the first one to say Putin is a liar and a thug. And if we were, God forbid, to get in sort of any sort of military confrontation with China over Taiwan or whatever it may be, uh, we do not need, you know, we don't need a two front war, right? We don't need a strong Russian military, uh, in, in that scenario. That's not, that's, you know, that would not be a helpful scenario for us. So I'm fine with weakening, uh, the Russians as much as, as much as possible. Do you think if Trump were to win this time, he's one who seems to harbor a lot of grievances? Why should I not expect him to weaponize some of the um, institutions? And, um, and I fully say this, conscious that there are some Republicans who believe that Democrats have done that too, and I'm against it full stop. But because Trump has proven that he will go to all costs to keep, you know, his election victory uh, facade going or the likes, why should I not worry about that or should I? You know, you're hitting on what I think will be uh, the the challenge that he and his campaign, if, if he is the Republican nominee, the challenge that they will have in the general um, especially with independent voters. The questions that I hear you asking, I think independent voters will be asking of, of him if, if he's a nominee. Again, as we've talked the whole time, there's there's a long way to go. So if he is the nominee, that is the central question that I think most independents are going to have of him that they will be looking to whenever they look at him you know, in the debates, because they will have, in my mind, they will have a lot of reason to vote against President Joe Biden and the Vice President Kamala Harris. Uh, they will look at Joe Biden and his age. They will worry, is he going to be able to finish four years? I, I think the White House press secretary, you know, when she had that little oopsie, when she said, you'll have to ask him if he could finish all four years. Um, it, it's those kinds of, the, there's a lot of doubt, I think, for uh, independent voters in their minds about, um, is he still competent on the world stage? Can he physically withstand another four four years? And if he can't, and do I feel comfortable essentially my vote being for a president Kamala Harris? So President Trump is going to need to make that argument and he's going to need to assure people that it's not going to be a chaotic uh, presidency uh, that it, and that's gonna, that's clearly going to be the toughest challenge that he has in the general election. You know, normal suburban moms that want a better economy, 
that are worried about America's, you know, standing on the world stage just, you know, because of the age and perceived incompetencies of the president. Um, so their natural proclivity is to want to have another choice, is to want to vote for someone else. Uh, but I don't think they're going to vote for a chaos candidate. So President Trump and, and his campaign are going to have to say, you know, this is like I would encourage them to remind the American people this was the price of milk in my presidency. This was the price of eggs. This was the price of gasoline. You know, go through all of the things that felt, uh, you know, much more stable. He was obviously listen. It was dealt a terrible hand with COVID. It doesn't matter who was president when a hundred year pandemic comes down. Uh, that's like a shit sandwich that you do not want landing on your presidency, especially in, in an election year. So people are going, if he is the nominee, uh, these independents, uh, these suburban women are, are going to have, uh, and Hispanic who, who have a lot of the Hispanic community in Florida and Texas have been swing voters. So these people are going to have that binary choice again. And I do think that people want stability when it feels chaotic on the world stage. So he's going to need to argue, uh, you know what, despite all the media hoopla, Putin did not invade on my watch, right? Despite all the media hoopla, uh, I was able to tame Xi Jinping, right? Or, or whatever his argument is going to be. So that's his challenge. That That's that's his greatest challenge that he's going to have to convince the American people that he um, is actually, that their lives were better off under him uh, economically and that he can, uh, and that he can be a stable president. Big challenge, but uh, and I will still be a skeptic. But I am so delighted to have my friend Morgan Ortegas. I think you know to the extent that we can have disagreements and still find friendship. I am a huge admirer of yours, and uh, and of course um, the fact that you got that beautiful little daughter oh, in the world. Uh, so <laughs> thank you so much for joining, Morgan. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Turning now to Julia Manchester, who has been covering all of the candidates, throwing their hats in the ring, starting with former Governor Asa Hutchinson. He made himself very available to reporters, which I think is an interesting strategy. Now, look, he's polling at less than 1%. So right now, as of this moment, and obviously anything can change, but, um, you know, he has a tough road ahead of him and he doesn't have the same name recognition that Donald Trump has. So, you know, it's been interesting watching him position himself as not necessarily a never Trump candidate. He says um, a non-Trump candidate and, you know, build that brand in front of the press. You know, we don't know if it's going to work yet. He doesn't have that name recognition, but there seems to be an effort on his part. Well, and he is, you know, to his credit, he came out during the indictment stuff and essentially said, like, we need to move beyond this and have a conversation about issues. He was the governor of Arkansas. He served in administrations. Um, what credentials is he selling on the trail as his credentials for the presidency? Yeah, so obviously, as governor of Arkansas, um, a red state, um, you know, so clearly in, you know, deep in Republican world, but he positions himself not necessarily the same way that a Ron DeSantis positions himself particularly on culture issues. We know that he's, uh, as governor, he vetoed some of these uh, gender-affirming care um, provisions that the 
very conservative Arkansas state legislature was putting forth to um, prevent gender affirming care. Now, Asa Hutchinson does not necessarily say he's a major figure within the trans support community, but he's pushed back on a lot of these culture war points that, uh, you know, Ron DeSantis makes, for example, and says, look, I'm a conservative. I don't think the government should be, or the federal government should be allowed um, to make these personal healthcare decisions for, um, you know, individual Americans. And he's continued to echo that. So I think that's something that's been interesting that set him apart from the rest of the field, as we've seen so many Republicans really start to dig in their uh, heels on the culture war issues. Uh, He talks about his past um, experience serving in the Bush administration, for example. So I think he's going to definitely lean into his executive experience, having served as a governor and having, you know, maybe broken away from the Republican cloth on a lot of these culture issues. And I think you're going to hear him say, I am a non-Trump candidate. And when you talk to him, he definitely makes that distinction between never Trump and non-Trump because he understands that there are a lot of Republican primary voters, the majority of them from what we're seeing now are a plurality that are pro-Trump. He's saying, I don't want to be a carbon copy of Donald Trump. I want to be my own person. And, you know, this is how I'm going to do it. That's interesting. Um, you know, I do. I feel like it may be popular in a primary to take on these very niche issues. Yeah, look, on abortion, he seems to be pretty pro-life, you know, thinks that this is something that should be left up to the states, Um, you know, has seemingly supported the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Chris Sununu is one, even, by the way, even my conservative dad has has said, I just don't know how we win with the abortion issue. So to him, I said, well, Chris Sununu is a pro-choice candidate. New Hampshire's governor might get in the race, um, has uh, signaled his interest, polls decently well in New Hampshire. He's a child of a politician. But in New Hampshire, like everybody, I guess, is child of uh, of politicians because all of them are actively involved in their government, which is, I guess, a good thing. But, um, you know, have you seen Sununu at all, like in terms of how he's standing up on this issue and is he standing out because of this issue? Yeah, look, New Hampshire is very similar. It reminds me quite a bit of Nevada. Um, they are both very libertarian leading uh, states. And to be a statewide elected official in Nevada or New Hampshire, I think you have to embrace the abortion, pro-abortion access side of this issue to an extent. And um, look, Chris Sununu understands his, um, you know, his, his base, not only his base, but uh, voters in New Hampshire. So he does stand out in that way. The question for Sununu is, you know, he stands out in New Hampshire, but can he stand out nationally? And can he stand out with the ultra conservative, um, pro-life or um, anti-abortion base within the Republican Party. And I was covering Nikki Haley just down the road in Arlington, Virginia. She gave an address basically rolling out her a platform on abortion. And she gave it at the Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America headquarters. They are 
one of the, by, you know, hands down the most influential anti-abortion advocacy group or lobbying group, whatever you want to call it in politics right now. But her address was interesting in that she essentially said, look, these red state bans on abortion that you're seeing, that's never going to fly at the federal level. So we got to work to get consensus. Then the, then she was a bit more vague. And then, of course, afterwards, chatting with people at the Susan B. Anthony list, the, you know, they seemed to be under the impression that she told them that she had uh, embraced a 15-week ban. But in her address to the media and the public, um, 15 weeks or, you know, a specific, uh, you know, timeline um, on abortion restrictions was never mentioned. So, you know, even though I would say the vast, you know, the majority of Americans were against the overturning of Roe v. Wade, I think you have these very powerful groups in, you know, at political advocacy or lobbying like SBA, Pro-Life America, who are going to want to want candidates to pass their litmus tests. And they're already going after former President Trump for not embracing the issue enough. So I think a lot of these candidates, and this is where I circle back to Sununu, will be under pressure uh, from those groups. And those groups come with a lot of support, funding, their own, um, you know, support base and such. So that's where I think he could run into some issues with trying to engage that broader base. Well, and, you know, the reason I want to go into all these other candidates is because if there is a crowded field, but you manage to get 32% and everybody else divides the ticket, that's how Donald Trump managed to win last time. So, It is, you know, curious to me, and I'm sure Sununu is probably doing the polling and trying to figure out the path, whether there's any sort of an appetite in getting enough people to the polls early that they could have a different position on that issue. Sununu seems to be the only one right now who seems more firmly pro-choice. Mm-hmm. Am I wrong? He, he definitely is. Right now, he is the most, I would say, left-leaning on the issue. Um, I'm sure, you know, there are liberals and New Hampshire Democrats who would say, you know, push back on that. But out of Republicans, absolutely. Um, he definitely is more, um, you know, leans in that direction for a Republican. Well, of the candidates who have announced, there's another name that few people knew who's decided to jump in, Vivek Ramaswamy. Am I saying that Yes. Right? <laughs> yes. Yes. Now, he's already managed to get Don Lemon fired, which I think a lot of people <laughs> didn't manage to do. Yeah. So he's done something with his candidacy. But have you covered Vivek any? What's what's he saying on the trail? Look, he's leaning into the culture issue, culture war issues as well. He was on Meet the Press talking about, um, you know, the concept of gender and his debate with Chuck Todd seemed to get some, uh, you know, a lot of attention there. Um, he's doing this because he's not, obviously, he's 
not a well-known commodity the same way a Donald Trump, Mike Pence, Ron DeSantis, et cetera, are. So he is doing what we would call a media blitz. I mean, he is everywhere. And he's on a lot of, uh, you know, Fox Business, CNBC, these financial networks, because he is an entrepreneur. He's a businessman. But one thing that I find very interesting about him is that he is 37. He's the only millennial in the field right now. And that's where Republicans, and there are a lot of Gen Z and Republican millennials who I've chatted with about this, that's where they lack getting those younger, uh, you know, y- younger v- voters to vote for them, to come, you know, work for them, that kind of thing, but more so work for them. There are lots of uh, uh, millennial Republicans and Gen Z Republicans working in campaigns, but th- they want to get that voter base. Um, so, you know, I think he is, he contrasts himself differently that way because he is seen as a fresher face, especially when you have, look, we talk so much about Joe Biden's age and absolutely he's old. He's 80 years old, but Donald Trump is 76. He's not much younger. Um, So in a way, Republicans have a similar problem on their side. So that's a contrast. That being said, though, I think Ramaswamy, um, you know, seems to be positioning himself in a way that he's building name ID. And, you know, if it doesn't work out for him and he's not necessarily the strongest contender right now, he's going to be a well-known political commodity going forward in Republican politics after this, whether that means vice president, Senate, House, whatever. Um, He's going to be, he's trying to establish his brand um, and a brand for millennial Republicans in many ways. I guess Larry Elder decided he was in the race. Larry Elder, he tried to run for governor of California. Um, Gavin Newsom is by far not a hugely popular governor of California. Tons of my friends are huge fans of Governor uh, Newsom. So I have to say that like out front, there are some Democrats who are huge uh, Newsom fans. There are other people who were kind of mixed on him because during the pandemic, of course, a lot of us were locked in our homes. We had no school. Our uh, schools were closed, but his kids were going to a private school. He, of course, got caught going to a restaurant. And though he said that he was following the rules, he was with a larger group of people and people felt like there was some hypocrisy and not enough support for small businesses. I think had the Republicans had any candidate worth a shot on the Republican side, they probably could have stood up a pretty uh, decisive challenge, but they put Larry Elder on the ticket, who lost uh, kind of hands down. He was kind of a conservative radio, I guess, personality. I think you're going to see some of these, you know, there's other, you know, the always these long shot candidates that announce. Larry Elder is obviously significant because he ran for governor of California during the recall. But his chances, I wouldn't say they're so great now. But look, I mean, anything can happen. Um, You know, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. Well, Glenn Yonkin's another one that people were saying he's the Virginia uh, governor. He's uh, he ran a campaign in which he wasn't um, wrapping or embracing himself around Trump, uh, but managed to win in Virginia, which has become a swing to lean Democrat state. 
And of course, you know, you can only have one term as the governor of Virginia. So he actually would be up. That said, he comes from the business world. I think um, he's probably got some questions of like how he would get the path there. He said he wasn't going to run to a reporter. And then afterwards, I guess an aide said, well, you know, he could decide. And I wanted to be like, that's not how this works. <laughs> they told Gerard Baker from the Wall Street Journal, it was during a talk at the Milken Institute, Gerard Baker asked him point blank, you're thinking about running. And he said, um, not this year. Um, and then once, and look, it's, it's logistically, is it possible? Technically, yes. But logistically, it's very difficult for someone to launch a presidential campaign in December or January of that presidential year. It's just, you know, it, it, it's, it's logistically not, I don't even know how much, you know, how many states you'd be able to make it on the ballot. I think there's a lot of questions as to how that would work. Um, but I thought it was interesting because in that same interview, he said, I'm focused on the state legislature races in Virginia this cycle. Democrats currently uh, control the Virginia State Senate, whereas Republicans control the House of Delegates. Um, And I think there is concern among Virginia Republicans as to how they will perform this year. Their elections are off year, so those legislative elections will be in 2023. And Glenn Youngkin last year, and well, after he was elected in 2021, he was seen as Republicans' shiny new object, if you will. They were very excited. I remember covering him. And then once he won, there was already questions about 2024. He hadn't even started governing yet. Um, So in 2022, he was traveling a lot in Virginia and outside of Virginia to campaign for uh, candidates running to meet with donors and such. And then in Virginia, we saw that Republicans didn't do so well in those elections Um, uh, last year. We saw that Democrats won two out of the three competitive House seats in Virginia. We've seen that recently Democrats have performed well in some of the special state level elections in Virginia. So there's been questions as to, okay, if Youngkin's going to run for president um, and he announces before the November 2023 elections in Virginia, and then Republicans perform poorly, that's not going to make him look like a strong candidate going into a presidential race. Well, and like the late announcement thing, like Deval Patrick tried that with the Democrats, and it just doesn't work because you have to build that apparatus to take on anyone effectively. And so I just, I think... Okay, well, that's not going to happen. And Chris Christie's got a TV gig. He's like seemingly happy with his ABC thing. So, you know, all these people who are like, oh, Chris Christie's maybe flirting with it. I think Chris Christie is using this to get himself more oxygen, but like there's the bridge disaster. You know, <laughs> there's, there's some issues with some Chris Christie uh, governance. It, he, he has somehow managed to get a presence on television despite it all. Yeah, he's certainly vulnerable, especially with bridge and what happened there. Um, But I think what you're seeing and him try to do right now is what he was originally supposed to be really in 2016 before Trump got in and even after Trump got in. He was trying to be 
the more, how do I say this, more establishment version of Trump. I remember before Trump even came onto the political scene, Chris Chris Christie was the tell it how it is uh, Republican kind of thing. Um, he was the, the blunt guy and such. Then we were introduced to Donald Trump and that all went out the window. Um, so I think you're trying to, you're, you're seeing Chris Christie trying to build that lane again, because we often talk about this on, you know, the Hill show on news nation, you have to be Trump to beat Trump and Trump gets down in the mud and with these personal, personal attacks. And right now you, you, you've seen DeSantis maybe push back a little bit, but a lot of these candidates are too afraid to go after Donald Trump directly, or they seem like they are, they're not punching back. Um, you know, Donald Trump is, you know, we, we see the pro DeSantis pack uh, rolling out anti-Trump ads, but Donald Trump and his team are anti-DeSantis all the time. They are trying to define him before he even jumps into the race. Um, so I think you're seeing Chris Christie try to be Trump or be Trumpian to beat Trump, but I don't know uh, how that works. I know that Chris Christie certainly has a following among New Hampshire Republicans, but that only goes so far. So we'll see. But yeah. Well, and Sununu has his following. So it's kind of like both of them probably shouldn't be in. Um, so it is, uh, you know, these kinds of names uh, that kind of light up on the scene. Is there anyone who hasn't gotten a lot of coverage, but you think like, Watch out for this person because they could be interesting. You know, that's that, that's interesting. Uh, that's a good question. I think we've all, you know, for I, I was always always had my eye on Glenn Youngkin just because I covered him so closely in 2021 and a bit during his administration. But it seems like that's, you know, not going to happen anytime soon um, if he ever does run. You know, he has gotten quite a bit of press coverage, but I think Tim Scott is someone to really watch. Um, he's let you, you said, mentioned this earlier. He has significant financial strength. He, um, you know, people just like Tim Scott. He is a very personable person. They say the same thing about Nikki Haley, too, the two South Carolinians running. Very likable people, good in one on one settings. He's also a very good order. Um, as well. And I'll never forget in 2016, there was an image during the primary. And I think this was shortly before the Florida primary. It was a picture of Rubio, a Hispanic man, Nikki Haley, Indian American, and Tim Scott, obviously a black man. And the, there was a picture that a lot of Republicans were touting. They said, this is the future of the Republican party. And I find it interesting that now two out of those three people are running for president, but Tim Scott's, he, he's an interesting guy. And even if it doesn't work out for him in 2024, I still think he's a rising star among the party and look, his own identity is, you know, interesting in itself. He, you know, look, he's the only black Republican in the Senate. Um, and this is a constituency that Republicans have done very poorly with and have not managed to win over. Um, there, I think there were some questions last election uh, cycle as to how, you know, Trump was, you know, that we saw some movement among black male voters. Um, it wasn't significant, but it was interesting to see some support for Trump there. But 
it'll be interesting to see if Tim Scott would be able to broaden that Republican tent. Um, he talks a lot about his own personal story, being raised by a single mother in poverty. I mean, that is just such a contrast to the last number of Republicans who have run for president. Um, so he's one to watch. That's it for Press Advance today. I have to thank both Morgan Ortegas and Julia Manchester for joining me on this episode. I have gotten to know Morgan on News Nation. We were together for nine hours of election coverage of the midterm elections, and we talked about our kids and what we want to see in our parties. It's really easy to think about people as their parties and not get to know them as the people they are. But I got to know Morgan as a reservist, as a mom, and as someone who treasures the freedoms we have in the United States of America. Similarly, Julia Manchester is dedicated to holding power accountable on the Hill, constantly working to get the stories from those involved in making decisions in Washington, D.C. I really appreciate all of you who stuck around. Our motto for the Iowa campaign for President Obama was respect, empower, include. And gosh, I think we could get back to that in politics. That is exactly what I want to do on Press Advance. And I'd love to have the audience involved. So if you're listening to this, please find me on social media at Johanna Masca. Send me what you think and let me know if I should read it on the podcast. Please follow us, rate and review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.